Americans have long had a reputation for being very good at boasting about themselves. I scratch my head with lightning and purr myself to sleep with thunder. Whether it's from a Mark Twain character, sports star, or politician, writer Richard Grant tells us what kind of American exceptionalism he enjoys best. That's the tradition of bragging that I admire is, is the funny, entertaining, clever bragging. Tour guiding friends from Madrid explain what they like most about living in the Spanish capital. Each little neighborhood in Madrid is like its own village. And Robert McFarland recommends exploring the underland to provide a deeper perspective for our place in the world. We all try it, don't we? You stand on the Grand Canyon rim and you dream back in geological time and it's dizzying. He suggests that a deep time journey can help us make the most out of the here and now. It's all in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Come along. My Facebook friends are a fun community of curious travelers, and you're invited to join in. To stow away with me in my work, play, politics, philanthropy, and travels, follow me at Rick Steves on Facebook. As a self-described isoholic, Robert McFarlane loves what glaciers can reveal to us over time, as well as the surprises the Earth hides beneath our feet. He explains how a deep time journey can help us better appreciate the here and now a little later in the hour. And tour guides from Spain, including an American expat, tell us why they love living in Madrid. Let's start today's Travel with Rick Steves with author Richard Grant. He's lived in Manhattan, the Mississippi Delta, and the Sonoran Desert of Tucson to immerse himself in different aspects of the USA. In contrast to the English modesty Richard was brought up on, he finds the chroming of American rappers, blues legends, rodeo cowboys, and frontiersmen can be highly entertaining. Richard wrote A Short History on American Bragging for issue 26 of Port Magazine, and he joins us now to explain. Hi, Rick. Good to be here. So this is so fascinating. You're an Englishman who knows quite intimately American culture because you live here now. And your British take on American, what is the word, braggadocio? What is that? It was, it was something that, that struck me hard um, coming from London, which you know is all about kind of understatement, self-deprecation, ironic, dry wit. Our humor is, is based on those things. But when I started traveling in America as a young man, there was a whole different sense of humor that was based on kind of overblowing stuff, exaggerating stuff, um, and bragging was a part of that. So let's talk first about the British self-deprecation. I mean, one thing, I, it always strikes me every time I go to, to England, is English people apologizing. Sorry, sorry, you're on my foot. <laughs> right. Sorry, would you like red wine or, or white wine? Sorry, sorry uh, would would you mind? Sorry, I'm just. Uh, excuse me a moment. Would you? Can I? Could, sorry, can I? Can I give you some more? Um, can I give you some more wine in your glass? <laughs> sorry. Isn't that interesting? Because Americans are just the opposite. They're just yeah. You know, and and from an English point of view, it must be just like, can you just calm down? Can you just chill? Don't be so full of yourselves. Uh, what does an Englishman think when he looks at some loud-mouthed American tourist? Showing insufficient modesty, I think you could say. Well, I mean, let's see. I was probably at high school, and I'm thinking back here. And yeah, absolute scorn and loathing is what we had for loud American tourists. But then around about that time, we started hearing the first hip-hop records, and, and we loved them, and that was all about boasting. So we decided, well, okay, so in this form, American boasting, when it's rhymed over a funky beat, can be, like, tremendous. So we, we had kind of two different takes on, on American bragging. We liked the hip-hop version, but the 
The loudmouth tourist, not so much. Well, if you think about, you know, blowing way out of proportion, that's kind of what comes out of hip-hop lyrics. It it actually goes way back in our culture. I mean, all the way back to Cowboy Times and Davy Crockett, you mentioned in your article, was uh, King of the Wild Frontier. I mean, as a congressman, crowning himself King of the Wild Frontier, it's almost like something Muhammad Ali would say. Yeah. I mean, I'd like to give you a quote from Davy Crockett that he got up in front of the U.S. Congress and said, in one word, I'm a screamer and I've got the roughest racking horse, the prettiest sister, the surest rifle and the ugliest dog in the district. I can walk like an ox, run like a fox, swim like an eel, yell like an Indian, make love like a mad bull. That was Davy Crockett? That was Davy Crockett in the U.S. Congress. Congressman Davy. It sounds kind of like Muhammad Ali in, in the ring. Right, right. Oh, my goodness. So I started, I started looking into the roots of hip-hop, too. And um, in African-American culture, you've got a kind of a tradition of bragging that, that borrows from that white frontier bragging and also has kind of its own style as well. So, But, yeah, you can listen to Muhammad Ali and... and think about Davy Crockett and there's I'm obviously the a connection. I'm, the I'm so bad I make medicine sick. Oh my goodness. And uh, it does have this long trail in the United States culture. I mean, Mark Twain was just loved tall tales. Uh, cowboys had all these exaggerations and competitive bragging. What are the, some of the things you learned from Mark Twain and cowboys? Well, I always loved um, Mark Twain's memoir of being a, a steamboat cub pilot on the Mississippi River. Mm-hmm. And there's one scene there where he has these two river boatmen who were famous for their bragging. And they have a kind of a brag off in the book. And they threaten terrible violence on each other. And one of them has, I can't remember the whole thing, but its uh, he's the copper-bellied corpse maker from the wilds of Arkansas. And he claims that, he says, I'm, I'm sired by a hurricane, damned by an earthquake, half-brother to the cholera, nearly related to the smallpox on my mother's side. I take 19 alligators and a barrel of whiskey for breakfast when I'm in robust health and a bushel of rattlesnakes and a dead body when I'm ailing. Mm. And then and then the other guy jumps up and he tries to like outbrag the first guy and he he says uh, when I'm playful I use the meridians of longitude and parallels of latitude for a seine and I drag the Atlantic Ocean for whales. I scratch my head with lightning and purr myself to sleep with thunder. The massacre of isolated communities is the pastime of my idle moments. The destruction of nationality is the serious business of my life. And they just keep bragging away at each other like this, but then the fight never happens. It's all bluster. I love it. That is, it's sort of timeless. I mean, you can imagine it today, and it goes way back, and it's, uh, I guess it's part of American culture, braggadocio. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Richard Grant. Richard Grant loves to travel and and pick up fascinating insights from his travels. I mean, that's what really, really uh, enriches your travel experience is that ability to observe and learn. Richard's latest book is called The Deepest South of All, True Stories from Natchez, Mississippi, another example of Richard traveling and gaining great insights. Right now, we're talking about the short history of American bragging from the point of view of an Englishman. And uh, Englishmen are all about sarcasm, all about self-deprecation, about uh, how would you sort of remind us how an Englishman looks at this braggadocio that Mark Twain and Davy Crockett and Muhammad Ali just slam dunked? I I loved it. It was just, it seemed like um, 
just a kind of liberation of the language to me. It's mm. such strong, fun language. And it's, you know, it's done for entertainment value. It's done for, it's full of humor. It's funny. It's wild. That's the tradition of bragging that I admire is, is the funny, entertaining, clever bragging. That to me is, is worthwhile. I mean, someone just, someone who brags without any humor or style or wit. Well, well that's is, it. You've got to have a twinkle in your eye. Uh, I, yeah. And, you know, but now conversely, me as an American going to England, rather than me saying, I'm going to kick your butt so hard it's going to go around the moon or whatever, you know, we, somebody might say, an Englishman might say, do you like hospital food? Yeah, that's the classic London threat of violence. Do you like it's not, hospital It's not like, food? I'm going to kick your ass right out of your pants. It's like, do you like hospital food? <laughs> See, that's, to me, that is, uh, I don't know, you, you, sometimes you can be louder by talking soft, but that's, of course, yeah. a whole different approach to this. But the English person that tells you that is actually more likely to put you in hospital, too, because the American well, guy is probably just doing it for fun. He's in, or he's just all bluster. Yeah. Richard, we've been talking a lot about braggarts, and they've all been men. What about women? Well, I think in general, you know, it's more socially acceptable for men to brag. And I think all over the world, men brag more than women. In America, women do tend to lose social points by openly boasting about themselves. But on the other hand, women can brag with shoes and handbags. They can post photographs of themselves on Instagram. I think Instagram is probably the braggiest social media platform. You know, that's interesting because we've sort of morphed from Facebook into Instagram and it really is about images and it really is about people, you know, running up the flagpole, what's so great about their lives. And mm -hmm. in a way it is bragging, isn't it? Well, there was one I noticed. Uh, it's a woman wearing a bikini. She's got this like really hot boyfriend and they're in Bali and he's holding her off the side of a high plunge pool in the, in the jungle. I mean, that, that to me is some pretty hardcore bragging. By, by the woman that posted that. And then you get the women who do the humble brag. If one more person tells me I look like Penelope Cruz, I'm going to scream. Or I wish people would stop telling me I should model. It's like I have a brain. So there's the, that humble bragging, which is actually... Um, That's really almost... Gets, gets on people's nerves. That could almost work in Britain, I think. Yeah. No makeup on, hair's not done, not wearing any deodorant, still get hit on, sigh. <laughs> Those are great. Richard Grant's exploring the fun side of American exceptionalism right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Richard writes for Smithsonian Magazine and the New York Times. His books follow American nomads and take us into the lawless heart of Mexico's Sierra Madre and on a crazy river journey in East Africa. He wrote Dispatches from Pluto about his impulse buy of a farmhouse on the Mississippi Delta. And his latest is The Deepest South of All. True stories from Natchez, Mississippi. Richard's website is richardgrant.us. You just wrote a book about culture in the Deep South. You've connected with an amazing cultural sort of weave down there. What's the, um, what's the humor? What's some deep Southern take on this kind of uh, self-deprecation or sarcasm well, think, or braggadocio? So, I think Southerners, Southerners like to blow things up out of proportion and, and get humor that way. I remember hearing something. It was, um, yeah, it was a guy, a guy talking about a woman and his girlfriend being squirrely-eyed. And I said, what do you mean squirrely-eyed? And he said, I mean, she can stand in the middle of Wednesday and look at both weekends. That or, sounds pretty southern. Or um, she had buck teeth so bad she could eat corn on the cob through a chain link fence. 
So they'll, yeah, they'll, they'll blow it up. They'll make it absurd by exaggerating it. That's injecting absurdity, right, in a clever way. But also very, very funny, clever storytellers. I bet. I bet you get people yeah. in, a, in a bar that just love to talk. It's sort of like the Irish gift of gab in the Deep South. You know, the, the only place that I see any parallels to Mississippi is, is in Ireland. They, both places had this storytelling culture. Yeah. Both places have like the church and the whiskey bottle kind of, you know, dueling it out. Um, both places have a real appreciation for musical talent. And yeah, I see a lot of I see oh, a lot that's of good. similarities. The church and there. the whiskey bottle. I know there's a number of pubs in Ireland called the Last Pew, and it's the pub across <laughs> the lane from the church. Really, that's good. <laughs> this is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking about a short history of American bragging, and I got to say, Richard, you are the funniest, most insightful, brilliant writer that I've ever encountered. My life will never be the same. Oh, see, I'm I'm too humble to brag on myself. I'm too English to brag on myself. You're an Englishman. I'm. An you can American. do it for me, Rick. Let's talk again soon. All right. Thanks, Rick. All right, Richard. Thanks so much for your short history of American bragging. Take care. Yo, I got travel books. They tell you what's going down. Or you can take some tours. They're the talk of the town. Europe through the back door is pretty much the bomb. So you should hit me up at RickSteves.com. Richard Grant examines the brags of Donald Trump. That's in a program extra at ricksteves.com slash radio. Robert McFarlane explains what a deep time journey involves in a bit. But first, friends from Madrid tell us what they love most about living there. We're at 877-333-RICK on Travel with Rick Steves. It's been the capital of Spain since 1561, when Madrid became the hub of the mighty Spanish Empire, a cosmopolitan powerhouse and home to some of the greatest collections of art in the entire world. Today, it's a bustling and love-with-life non-stop city that still manages to hold on to its traditions and historic plazas and architecture. But I don't need to sell my three guests on the wonders of their hometown. In the studio now, we have Federico Garcia Barroso, Javier Menor, and Amanda Buttinger, three Madrid-based tour guides who wouldn't dream of living anywhere else. Federico, Javier, Amanda, welcome. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. In the United States, people debate about living in various cities, Chicago, L.A., New York City, Seattle, and so on. They have their feelings about the warmth of the people, the cost of living, climate, the character of each place. How does Madrid stack up against Barcelona, Sevilla, and the other great cities? Javier? Oh, it's, it has its own personality. It's been the capital since the 1500s, and I guess that um, I could define Madrid as the establishment. Changes take a long time to reach Madrid. But that's why you can feel comfortable there. It's not an avant-garde city like Barcelona could be. You just zoom through the streets and you feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. Amanda, you've lived in Madrid. Uh, you grew up in Maryland, I understand, but mm -hmm. you've lived in Madrid for over 20 years. Yes, yes. How would you characterize Madrid compared to other great? Is there a personality I feel difference? like Madrid is a very tangible city. You can walk across the old town. You can live in the old town without feeling like you're in the skyscraper area of somewhere like Chicago. Uh, the people are wonderful to feel and watch. And you always have to look up in Madrid. There's some, always something to see in Madrid. You mentioned a skyline like Chicago. It does have that wonderful, it's Gran Via, right? With line mm -hmm. with all of these mm -hmm. art deco skyscrapers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you get that big 
you know, metropolitan feeling. Mm-hmm. But it's a very walkable city, isn't it? It is. You can it walk is. from the palace to the Prado Museum right through the main exactly. square. Exactly. You go from the metropolitan area with the Schweppes neon sign, and then you walk two blocks over, and you're in a quaint little neighborhood with shops and bars and people sitting on benches. Federico, any thoughts on how Madrid is unique compared to other Spanish cities? Yes. Yes, Rick. I have to say that um, Amanda is a very good example of what we are talking now Many American and Canadian friends, they just come to Spain, they just go to different places, they are thinking about settling down there, and finally they choose Madrid, you see. It's a very friendly city, very cosmopolitan, open to everyone, and I have to say, as we we tour guides guiding people everywhere, all over Spain, you know, I really, really think, honestly, and I love all the places in Spain, that Madrid is absolutely the best city to welcome travelers. So Federico, you said cosmopolitan. Hmm. How is Madrid a cosmopolitan city? It's a very cosmopolitan city in, in, because of many reasons. Um, well, obviously, the Latin American community, you see, when they just come to Spain, they just, Madrid is just the gate of arrivals, you see. Mm-hmm. And it is, it is important to, to see many people come from Latin America and also from many other places, from, from many different destinations, you see. They come to Madrid, they stay there, and we can see that in those restaurants, so many restaurants from every place in the world. Amanda, you settled in Madrid. Are you a local now? I mean, how, I am a local. Yeah. I know the people at the bread shop. I know the people in my grocery store. The lady, I always go to Lucia's checkout, all those types of things. And each little neighborhood in Madrid is like its own village. In my perception, I, I feel like that that's what it's like when you go to each little area has its own character and its own village sense. So if you say a village, describe that a little more. What's it like to have a village in a big city of several million people? You say hi to the people on the street. If you go to a bar more than three times, they know what you want. They are your friends, and it's a sense of community in a small area of a big, big city. So, Javier, I've been in Madrid with you looking at um, bars and tavernas and so on, and it's just an amazing sort of energy in the tapas scene. In a lot of regions of Spain, you've got your one style. Madrid, it seems to all come together. Oh, totally. And um, I was born in the 70s, and I have seen the evolution of Madrid. The restaurant, the bar scene... And it's improving so much. In two years, you have a new neighborhood. You have a new street, a new area. My problem when I write a guidebook is I find the place I really loved and I wish it was the same next year, but it's changing all the time. You have to it go is, back. It is. It's constant evolution because there is a lot of margin for evolution in Madrid. A, a lot of margin for evolution. A lot what of margin for evolution. Um, we were like so back, so behind. Uh-huh. For example, oh, Barcelona. Yeah. That there is a lot of room to improve, to change, to make it better. So you took me to a big thing theater, a giant classic theater that is now like a food festival. Describe these kind of places. Mercados. Yeah. Now we have all the traditional mercados that are from 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. You go to the butcher, you go buy fish, you go buy your fruit, and around 1.30, the new shops are opening, which are little restaurants, like implants inside the market. In the market, in the, in the, in the, in the farmer's market. So you've got the butcher selling steaks, and next door you have the... Uh, the man who is grilling the steaks. Because there's that one amazing scene uh, north of Gran Via that uh, was just a former market, and mm-hmm. it becomes kind of tired. Federico? Yes, I took you to that place called Platia. Platia, ah. which means actually in English orchestra, 
It was uh-huh. a beautiful classic movie theater that has been totally transformed ah, that was you that took in, me there. into That's an right. Epicurean center, a gastronomic place where you can actually have uh, Spanish tapas and also food from other places. So it's like a three three layers of former seating for a yeah. theater, mm-hmm. uh, Art Deco grandeur, a mm-hmm. stage, mm-hmm. and it must have been 20 restaurants. And then yeah. every few minutes they would open the curtain on the stage and there'd be live entertainment for all the diners. It's really one of the best places in the city. It is the best choice to, to enjoy Spanish food. And it's not really expensive. And the name is? Platia. Platia. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm talking with Federico Garcia Barroso, Amanda Buttinger, and Javier Menor. We're talking about why we love Madrid. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Lynn's calling from Coral Springs in Florida. Lynn, thanks for your call. Do you have a comment for our guides? Yes, I do. I think one of the best un heard of places to visit is the Sarabo Museum. I hardly know anybody that's been there, and it's one of the best things that anybody could ever see in Madrid. It's a uh, Belle Epoque mansion, and everybody could see how the uh, kings and queens lived. That's like a throwaway, but you could really see how a rich person lived and their home. And from the floor to the ceiling, he covered it in um, all kinds of decorative arts. It's really overdone, but so fantastic to see. It has a ballroom, um, because if you were wealthy then, you had a ballroom. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and then... Now, wait a second. See- this is the oh. Ceralbo, C-E-R-A-L-B-O Museum. And Correct. from the Belle Epic, meaning uh, before World War One, right? The turn of the, oh, yes. turn of the 20th yeah, century. The, the wealthy people. And after seeing all of these rooms and the bathrooms, which are interesting, and the kitchens, and you go to his bedroom... And it's as spare as a nun's room. That was his bedroom. But in the end, it is one of the most magnificent things you could possibly go to see in Madrid, as far as I'm concerned. You know, you're, it's reminding me of the Jacques Mart André Museum in Paris. Another but they had yes, they had, of that. they had taste. And they had <laughs> taste, and they had money. And this was before World War One, when it was a gilded society. It's also reminded me of the. Um, Beautiful Gaudi private homes, uh, Casa, was it Casa Mia in uh, Barcelona? And you can tour it and you can see just what somebody was, li- a rich person was, how they would live so elegantly. Uh, Federico, do you know about this museum that Lynn's talking yes, about? Yes, it's actually one of those, our, our small secrets in, in Madrid. We usually talk no about... No longer a small secret. No, no longer. No longer. We always talk about the royalty and then we have to remember the nobility also. Yes. Some remarkable people in the Spanish nobility, they sponsored those artists, as you see. You can feel that uh, philanthropic atmosphere in that wonderful Serralbo Museum, which is located, by the way, not far from the Royal Palace and not far from the Egyptian Temple and okay. the Bor. And the garden, not only the building, the garden, is actually like traveling time. And then you go to those wonderful years of the late 1800s and the beginning of the 1900s, uh-huh. and it's, it's just like the Belle Epoque in Madrid, you saw in a nutshell. Hey, uh, Lynn, you know, when you talk about the Serralbo Museum, I also think of the Soroya Museum. Have you been there? I have been there, too, and I really had not known who Soroya was until I went to his home, and he didn't have as much money, but all of his paintings are there, and then you realize that Sargent and he were good friends, and they, they fed off of each other, and you could see the influence, and that's another unknown, wonderful place to go if you really want to delve into the city and see more than just the highlights that everybody goes to. Lynn, it sounds like you're a, travel, a budding travel writer or a tour guide. Thank you. I'm glad to be validated. Happy Thank travel. you. You bet. Bye-bye. And we're getting stoked to explore Madrid, Spain again with the help of three professional tour guides who call it home. Amanda Buttinger, Federico Garcia Barroso, and Javier Menor. 
It's an interview we recorded before the onset of the global pandemic. We have links to our guests and their virtual tours with this week's show notes at ricksteves.com radio. Ed's calling from Vancouver in Washington. Buenos dias, Ed. How are you doing? Hey, buenos dias, Rick. Yes, uh, hey, I have a question. It's uh, kind of a interesting thing. Last year I was lucky enough to go to Mallorca, and on the way there on the plane, uh, one of my fellow travelers said, hey, you have to try a gin and tonic when you're in Spain. And I thought, well, you know, gin and tonic, that doesn't sound like anything, you know, Spain would be famous for. But, boy, when I got there and I ordered a gin and tonic in a bar, it was quite a ritual to watch the bartender prepare this and, you know, ask me questions about what kind of ingredients I wanted. And and so I just, I'd like to hear a little bit more about that and maybe a great place in Madrid to have a gin and tonic, and, and you know, maybe a little bit of the history behind it. Because we know what to get a caña, a little beer, and we know to get a, a glass of uh, vino tinto. Federico, what about uh, mm-hmm. gin and tonic and other, uh, there other is, things? Actually, there is a place. There is There are several places all over the city, but, but in just in the city center, there's a street called Reina, Queen. Reina R-E, Street. How do you spell it? R-E-I-N-A, okay. Reina Street. And right there, we, we, well, a few years ago, there was just one or two places. Now there is a kind of, I mean, several places where people go there to enjoy that, that protocol you know, to serve you those. So a ritual for how to absolutely. do the gin and tonic. A ritual about the gin and tonic. And it's a wonderful place where you find there, of course, locals and many uh, travelers, you see, enjoying that. I had a friend in Barcelona who was determined to take me to a vermouth bar. Mm-hmm. That was very trendy in Barcelona. Is that unique to Catalan, or are there vermouth bars around That's Spain? My first date with my husband was at a vermouth bar. <laughs> okay, so what, what is a? What, how do you describe it's a an, vermouth bar? It's an aperitif. It, for me, where I like to go are the classic wooden bars and uh, old-style uh, traditional tiles and things yeah. like that. And you go in and you have a little vermouth and maybe some olives on the side. And, and it's a way to... little munchies with yeah, it. Yeah, to yeah. open up your appetite. And okay. it's a little bit sweet, a little bit... And, uh, I may say strong. that uh, gin, gin and tonic has been the drink for the last five years, but now we're moving towards vermouth. Is that oh. right? So the vermouth, so because I, yeah, the I really enjoyed the uh, just the vibe in this vermouth bar. Hmm. But uh, the beautiful thing when we go to Spain, in the United States we have all sorts of efficiency, but we don't have that abundance of bars that have this elegant sort of patina of age and tradition. And people go there as they as their parents did almost. Mm-hmm. And it's got that well, elegance. you go into the into the bar where I met my or had the first date. There are all kinds of people. Uh, Older, retired couples, people in their 20s, people in their 30s, people with kids. So, Ed, there's a great example of how to relax your way through the end of a sightseeing day in Madrid. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much. That's a good idea. Thanks for your call. Okay, happy travels. And James is calling from Virginia Beach in Virginia. James, thanks for your call. Rick, thanks for taking my call. I talk to you many times. I hope to run into you sometime in Europe. (laughs) I hope so. Keep an eye out for me. (laughs) Yes, I've been to Europe 14 times, usually with groups. And the couple times I've gone on my own, being an adventuresome senior citizen, I want to endorse Madrid. In 2014, my college spring break, I I ran at a uh, actually a hostel right down the street from the Puerta del Sol in Madrid for a week, and I found Madrid to be just a wonderful and safe city with laid-back people. I also did... So, James, hang on, hang on. Did I catch that you're a senior traveler and you stayed in a hostel? 
Yes, sir. I've done that actually uh, in several cities in Europe. What's that like uh, to be the, as big as the as old as the grandfather of a lot of the kids in the in the dorm room next to you? Well, here's the thing. The times of years I've traveled, actually I went to Paris and Barcelona four days each in a December, and there's actually only one other person in the in the unit, in the building. <laughs> so you're paying I a, for... I had a single room. I love yeah. that. In a hostel, you can very conceivably pay for a bed in a room with 20 beds, and it's going to be, you know, 10 or 20 bucks, and you actually have a single with a lot of place to stretch out. <laughs> Even like in uh, Vienna, there were three other people in the room. There were graduate students, yeah. two of them in my field. So, it, yes, I've met some interesting people, and it's been very safe, and nothing's stolen. Hey, James, <laughs> did, did you take any side trips from Madrid that you would uh, have yes, people Yes, I wanted remember? to mention that. Yes, since you're there for seven days, nothing against Madrid, but I, I planned two side trips. I did take a bus day trip to Segovia, which was wonderful. And on another day of the week, I took a, a, a side trip to Toledo. So, you know, this is, I would recommend those as nice, easy side trips to take from Madrid. All right. Hey, James, thanks for your call. And um, after you uh, hang up, stay listening because I'm going to ask our guides to talk about their favorite side trips. Okay? Thank you. Okay, thank you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking about Madrid. And the great thing about Madrid is it is the hub of a great country with wonderful transportation that comes in and out of Madrid. If you're frustrated by the trains, hop on the bus. A lot of us are really committed to the trains, but there are wonderful bus connections. And I'd love to just let Amanda, Javier, and Federico each uh, talk about one favorite day trip from Madrid and why. I think my most favorite day trip is to Segovia. I think uh, you can either take the bus or the train. It's uh, kind of whatever you prefer, uh, whether you take the fast train in and then take a shuttle bus into the town or take the bus directly into more of a central part of town. I think they're both very easy, but it's very magical. Famous for its Roman aqueduct, Roman aqueducts, its castle, its, its romantic castle. Alcazar, and then also a lot of beautiful Romanesque churches that you can peek in and even just see from the outside to walk off that beaten path. I really enjoyed the Paseo in, yeah. in Segovia, too. Every, oh, it's, it's a gorgeous. wonderful. It's like a gully through the mm-hmm, town, and everybody's mm-hmm. there. Javier? I'm going to say Segovia as well, but don't make it a day trip. Stay for one night. <laughs> because those cities are day trips. And uh, when oh, good idea, when they yeah. reach the 5 p.m., 6 p.m. line, yeah. they transform themselves, and they become very different places. So make the effort mm-hmm. and spend one night. How long would it take by bus or train to go from Madrid to Segovia? One hour. And I bet there's a departure at 10 o'clock at night. Probably. So you could. I mean, if you're just a crazy American traveler without much time and you couldn't spend the night, you could actually go in the afternoon and stay until... And take one of the last uh, buses, trains to go back. back. I think Mm -hmm. so, yeah. (laughs) I bet you could get a midnight bus back. (laughs) Instead of going early, (laughs) go a bit later and enjoy the last part of the day. And Federico, your tip for a day trip out of Madrid. Yes, there are several places, several places, and and, um, they are all quite reachable with a high-speed train. You can go to Segovia, Toledo, Cuenca. That is fantastic. You can go to Sevilla. Sevilla, Córdoba. Way in the south. It used to be a 10-hour train ride. Mm. Now how long on the Ave? Two hours and a half, if I'm not wrong. Two hours and a half. You yeah. could get an early breakfast, have eight hours in Sevilla. I mean, it seems ridiculous, but hey, if you've never seen Sevilla. So the point is there are a lot of places you can a reach of because places. of Spain's excellent public transportation. When I first went to Spain, no freeways, no fast trains. Now laced with freeways and laced with bullet trains. There is also a nice place in the outskirts of Madrid in the mountains called El Escorial. I really mm-hmm. like El Escorial, where you see that massive fortress of Philip II, the king in, in Spain, in, in Madrid, 1560, 
one and showing to you the power of those Habsburgs. You see, it's a, it's a huge fortress and people are actually quite fascinated about those stories. Is it fair to say back then the king of Spain was the most powerful man in Europe? He was actually. I mean, just think about how that country that is far, 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 far away from Spain called the Philippines. The Philippines were the islands of Philip. Named after uh, King Philip. Yeah. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I've just really enjoyed talking with all of you, getting all sorts of ideas on going back to Madrid. Amanda Buttinger, Javier Menor, and Federico Garcia Barroso. Gracias. Gracias. Gracias, Rick. Gracias. He grew up above the caves and coal mines of Nottingham in the English Midlands. So it's no wonder Robert McFarlane has been fascinated by the landscapes that frighten most people. It took him 10 years to write his book, Underland, which one critic called one of the most ambitious works of narrative nonfiction of our time. Robert McFarlane is back with us next on Travel with Rick Steves to take us someplace we've never been before, on a deep-time journey. As a traveler, I'm all about getting beyond the surface of people and places and to better understand our world. But writer Robert McFarlane, he really takes that mission literally. In his book, Underland, A Deep Time Journey, Robert explores the Earth's underworlds, its caves, its catacombs, and deeply hidden places. He found himself drawn into the sunless sights that, that may have repulsed other people through the ages. In this subterranean world, he found a world of unburials, untimely surfacings that can be dazzling and they can be horror shows at the same time. Robert McFarland, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Rick. I'm just fascinated by, well, by travel, and then somebody can expose to me the, 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 a whole nother frontier, and that's this underground journey and this fascination with the underland. What, what bookends your whole approach to this? I mean, you were inspired to write this. Tell me a little bit about the context that you wrote this book in. Yeah, I, I mean, the first thing to say is I love mountains. That that, that they have my heart. And I, and the first book I ever wrote was about why we climb mountains. And you know, fifteen years on, here I am trying to explain the opposite, the gravitational opposite. But the idea came in twenty ten, um, uh, which was a, a year when it was hard not to think about the underworld, about the underland. That was the year when the Haitian earthquake um, shook the world. The Icelandic volcano uh, stopped the flights of Europe and America. Ayafiatla Yokotl. It's the year when the Deepwater Horizon blowout occurred and when those 33 Chilean miners were trapped under the Atacama Desert and were brought out one by one in a, in a space capsule. And I just remember watching those four things happen, watching those surfacings, natural and human, and just thinking about this raging world we stand on, on this thin crust. And I worked on that book for eight years on and off, and, and I finished the last paragraphs as that Thai football team were trapped under the mountain by the rising waters. Now, you know, when you think about those 33 miners, 700 meters deep underground in Chile, that's 2,000 feet. That's a third of a mile. And it was NASA, which is uh, its expertise is in outer space, <laughs> that was called in to rescue them. I, uh, well, they, they helped. They helped, absolutely. And oh. I, I, very often space and the underworld collide. I, I, I was down in a dark matter research laboratory You've got one in a Dakotan gold mine yourselves. That's where astrophysicists go to try and work out what the universe is made of. But they have to do it at a mile underground because that shuts yeah. out the atomic noise of the world, of the universe, and allows them to listen carefully. Robert, when I think of Underland, I think of claustrophobia. How does claustrophobia tie in with your exploration of what's under our feet? I, I think this is the only book I've ever written where I'm thrilled when someone writes to me and says, 
I couldn't I couldn't read on. I had to put it aside. I was yeah, I was spasming. I had to I had to get out <laughs> into the sunlight. <laughs> um yeah, claustrophobia fascinates me because you can you don't have to be there. In in a way that's not true with vertigo, you can you can you can feel profoundly claustrophobic just by reading about something someone else is doing. That as a writer that interests me in, immensely because it means you have mm-hmm. a power over your reader. You can grip them. You know, I I have that power when I read about climbing a mountain. I'm just oh, you so do. I'm just gripping the 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 couch as I'm reading, you know, when they're when they're on a the face of a cliff or something. And I have the same thing when I read some accounts in your book of claustrophobia. It was just like I need a break from this. Isn't that isn't that amazing? The power a writer has. It's very rare. Um that you can you can shape the body and shape I the body it. of your reader. Um it. yeah, it's a it's a strong feeling. I mean, there were there were a couple of places where um where you felt the weight of the world pressing upon you. And Robert, I can't help but think what we've all lived through in the last year or so with this pandemic. Is there any sort of poignancy with what you've learned in this book that is particularly applicable to where we're at today? Well, I mean, there's a line in in Underland that I wrote, um, to understand the light, you need first to have been buried in the deep down dark. And Mm. I wrote that long before Corona, but that's where we are um, now, still buried, I think. And the light, when we see it again, is is dazzling and wonderful, and we we remember what is astonishing and dear and precious to us. Well, there's so much going on that is sort of almost existential challenges to us, and uh, a a lot of it is going to require for us being more sensitive and and thoughtful about our environment. Uh, Much of the underworld is frozen. You call yourself an isoholic. What's what's an isoholic? I, mean, I think well, maybe an isoholic or a cryophile, depending on your cryophile. Uh, your that's yeah, I, I, I love ice. Okay, that, I think that's high altitudes and high latitudes have my heart. I'm not a desert and a jungle person, and uh, so it's 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 always been about mountains and glaciers for me. So, yeah, I've written about them for as long as I've as long as I've been writing. I, I love what you write that that glaciers are like creatures, the closest thing to living dead matter. Yeah, they they howl, they sing, uh, they murmur, they mutter, they talk to themselves, and they move. Of course, it's no coincidence that we talk about glaciers carving as though they were creatures. When a when a vast berg breaks off from the the tidal face of a glacier, that's a carving. And indigenous languages fully recognize the liveliness of of this moving ice. We could gain an appreciation of glaciers, glaciers, as we say in the states. I think uh, <laughs> by uh, by just thinking how indigenous peoples respected glaciers, and one thing about them is how vast they are. I mean, they are just mind-bogglingly powerful. Yeah, I mean, they they're, they're one of the most powerful erosive geomorphological forces on the on the planet. They can they can take out a mountain range, no problem. We know that, um, but they're also within our power to destroy. And I remember. Mm-hmm. Being on in East Greenland, you know, the remotest place I'd ever been, climbing there for weeks in the summer of 2016, the summer of greatest melt in Greenland at that time, uh, and the, the ice was utterly powerful, awesome in a way I'd never seen in any other substance before. But it was also melting; it was retreating. Mm. We could see where the glaciers should have been. We heard stories of of ships whose GPSs were screaming at alarm at them because the GPS recorded ice where there was no ice, so the ships could sail on through Mm. clear water. You know, you talk about glaciers as being the closest thing to living dead matter. They sing, they crawl, they shatter, they rage. When you're mindful of the impact of climate change, it must be heartbreaking if you love the world to be on a glacier and to hear the 
the shattering and the rage and the moaning. Yeah, glaciers have always done that. Of course, that's what they do. They make that noise, but they make it faster now. Uh, and it is a kind of um, pain song. I think that's right. A I, pain we, we, song, yes. And, and, a, and, a, and a frightening one at that. I, I spoke to the inhabitants of the little village of Kulasuk in East Greenland, and actually for them, the, the mark of the glaciers going was silence. It wasn't noise, it was silence. Um, they used to be able to hear its carving explosions from the village, but as it had retreated over 20, 30 years, it had gone around a mm. corner and they, they couldn't hear the glacier anymore. That really struck mm. me to my heart. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Robert McFarlane and his book is Underland, A Deep Time Journey. Robert's a fellow at Emmanuel College in Cambridge in England. And we're looking under the surface right now at what he reveals in his book, Underland. Robert, I'm fascinated by how you say in Underland, it, the Underland is, is a is a world where you store what is precious and you dispose of what is harmful. What are some examples of storing what is precious and disposing what is harmful? Well, the first thing we store is, is, is the bodies of our loved ones. Uh, we've, we've been a, a burying species and, and our predecessors were burying species. We're just starting to understand how long um, we've been burying our dead. The, the first cemetery known in Britain I've been into is, uh, is 10,000 years old. Um, these hmm. were people living hard, um, nomadic lives, but they still wish to place their dead somewhere safe. But states uh, store data, um, the, the Svalbard seed vault, is where we store all the world's seeds that we think we might need after an apocalypse to regrow a world. But even the Svalbard seed vault up, up in the Arctic isn't safe because it flooded when um, the permafrost melted around it. Uh, so yeah. And so we, this we, this this vault of the of what to we can repopulate the world's vegetation and so on. Yeah. It assumed that it would be locked in a frozen in a permafrost, and that's changing, huh? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, they, they, they placed this vault um, so far above the highest possible range that, a, that a, an Arctic tsunami could reach, but they didn't mm. count on permafrost melting around the vault. That's disturbing. Uh, and then, and there's, along with that, there's what you call untimely surfacings, ancient methane deposits in the Arctic uh, that are just going to be burped out as the permafrost thaws. Burped out, exactly. I mean, this is happening again and again. It's happening through heat and it's happening uh, the the River Elba during the, the, the drought summer of a few years ago in Europe. They have these, um, these drought stones which become visible when the river's level drops uh, and they have messages on them. And, and one of them has this, <laughs> this message which translates as, if you see me, weep. And, you know, talk about a warning from the depth. Imagine, uh, and as you described in your book, Robert, that was from that was from about six hundred years ago. So, yeah, uh, yep. uh, some tribe was was suffering through a drought, and they carved into that stone. If you see me weep, knowing that future generations would be counting on that river to be there, and in bad times it would expose that stone. And it's a poignant message from the past that we're all in this together. That's brilliantly put. I mean, what a shiver shiver down the spine of, of consolation and kindness, but also fear when you see that drought stone emerge. Hmm. And we've got, uh, talking about emerging, we've got Greenland revealing Cold War missile bases with hmm. toxic chemicals you talk hmm. about. Yeah, that was a, an American project, straight out of the James Bond casting scene, um, that they would build a, a, a subglacial nuclear weapons base cut, uh, with a cinema generator, a small nuclear generator, 
hundreds of thousands of gallons of of, of toxic material. And then they 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 just left it, closed the door on it because they thought the the snow and the ice would bury it as it accumulated. But of course, it's no longer accumulating, so it's rising to the surface. Another unburial. Robert McFarlane teaches environmental humanities at Emmanuel College at Cambridge, where he's joining us from his home studio on Travel with Rick Steves. His book, Underland, won the Wainwright Prize. The Guardian called it one of the hundred best books of the 21st century. In it, he takes us to explore the world beneath our feet as we peer into the deep time of the planet's past. His earlier titles include Mountains of the Mind, Landmarks, The Wild Places, and The Old Ways. You'll find frequent postings from Robert on Twitter. And Robert, I love it. Like you're, you're a tour guide for me. You're taking me out of my comfort zone. I'm, <laughs> I'm curious, and it's all new to me. And that's what is so exciting about travel, is there's so many frontiers that are new to us, and you're taking me underground. And when you talk about underground, you don't want to know, is it today or tomorrow? You don't want to know, is it noon or, or, or 6 p.m.? You have a concept called deep time. And deep time is is critical to understanding the underland. Tell us what deep time is. Yeah, so this is uh, the the phrase is John McPhee's the great New Yorker writer. Deep time is Earth time. Deep time is is measured in eons and epochs. It's not measured in minutes and years. Uh, it's it's not these are not human units. We we could think of it as the long the long now. Um, it, it's a kind of vertigo when you think about it. We we all try it, don't we? You stand on the Grand Canyon rim and you dream back in geological time and it's dizzying and impossible mm-hmm. but to me it 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 absolutely sharpens the sense of of miracle of of nowness we are here we, we shouldn't be our species shouldn't be we shouldn't have evolved let alone us individual versions of our species standing on the rim of that jaw-dropping space oh yeah it's like time lapse. It's our reality in time lapse. And sometimes you, you see things you wouldn't see otherwise if you can do a time lapse. And this is a time lapse of mm. time lapse where, as you write, ice breathes, the rock has tides, mountains rise and fall, we live on a restless earth. I remember standing and there's a waterfall in Switzerland in Lauterbrunnen Valley. Uh, it's called Trummelbach Falls. And it's it's a river that's carved itself deep into the mountain. And it's, it's just a, a stony world. And you go into that. You hike literally into the mountain. And it's a black and white world filled with mist and the thunder of the of the river. And, and it just seems to me this river is like God's bandsaw cutting through the earth. And if you can if you can get your brain around deep time, you can see this bandsaw at work. Uh, that's a, a brilliant description. And yeah, that bandsaw has, has been patient, right? It's taken hundreds yeah. of thousands years to do its cutting deep deep time is a you know it it uh, tilts into the future as well and i guess that's what came to fascinate me about it as i as i travel I, I kept thinking that when you descend into the underland you descend into the past but actually in many ways you you head into the future as well in finland at onkalo the the hiding place as it translates there they're building a deep geological repository for high level nuclear waste they're basically they're they're creating a a sarcophagus that can keep the worst stuff we've made as a species and keep it safe for a hundred thousand mm. years. Uh, and they're also thinking there, how, how do we communicate the danger of this place, which will last for, for millennia? They're thinking ahead. I went to that place expecting it to be, to be hell, to be the end of the world. And I came away uh, oddly exhilarated by the responsibility that was being exercised there. That's deep time into the future. That's a, a careful legacy leaving that they're doing. 
And is this an initiative of the the Finnish people? Because it sounds like it's a, a multinational uh, undertaking, and and uh, the whole world should be thankful for this. It's a Finnish initiative for Finnish waste. Um, they put a basically a penny on the energy tax back in the 1970s, and mm. they've used that war chest to deal with their own uh, their own waste. And I admire them for it. But no other country has managed to do this. You know, there's kind of an ethical dimension of deep time. You know, uh, should we even care? Should we be inspired into action? Or should we just say, uh, let's be apathetic because it really doesn't matter in the deep time? But then you got this wonderful question that Jonas Salk asks, are we being good ancestors? Uh, what's your take on that considering deep time? Is it just like it's futile anyways? Or do we have some responsibility to be good stewards? Yeah, we have responsibility. And what a question it is. Are we being good ancestors? It stops you, it searches mm -hmm. you, probes your heart, probes your conscience. To be a good ancestor doesn't mean to be a good parent. It doesn't mean to be a good grandparent. It it means to be responsible to people you will never meet, generations you will never meet, species that haven't existed yet. And that's hard. We're not very good at that. We're not good at being kind to the people closest to us sometimes. Imagine if that was imagine if that sensibility, if that ethic was woven into our way of consuming and our way of voting and our way of loving, oh, that would be, it would be transformative. It would be transformative. It'd be something we as a species, as a society, as an age could be proud of. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Robert McFarlane and his book is Underland, A Deep Time Journey. Robert's known for works that explore landscape and their connection to the human heart. His earlier books include Mountains of the Mind, Wild Places, The Lost Worlds, The Old Ways, and Landmarks. He's also co-written a book called Ghost Ways, after exploring some of England's most mysterious landscapes. We have links to Robert's works with this week's show at ricksteves.com radio. And Robert, just reading through your book, it's travel. It's travel. And a lot of travelers are given an object, or they, or they, or they find an object, or they pack along an object that has a special meaning to them. Have you ever, in your quest for a better appreciation of the Underland, carried with you or been given some some small object that has a surprising meaning to you that you might want to share? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yes, you're right. We all carry our amulets and our, our charms, don't we? Um, in the mountains, I love to carry red hot chilies. So when I'm cold, I just I, I eat a raw chili and it, it, it vims me up. But mm -hmm. what I carried in the Underland was, a, was an owl, um, an owl made of whalebone, whalebone that had taken from the carcass of a minke whale that had washed up on the shores of the Outer Hebrides. Uh, and an artist friend made it, cut the whalebone into the form of an owl, a little white owl, the size of my palm, thin as a coin. Mm. And he gave it to me and he said, this is to help, just when I began the journeys, he said, this is to help you see in the dark. Uh, and it was such a strong gift. It, it made me realize that darkness isn't blindness. Darkness is actually a place where we can see things we'd never understand anywhere else. And Robert McFarlane, your book, Underland, A Deep Time Journey, is, is like, it's kind of like an owl for me. It helps me see in the dark. Thank you so much for joining us, and thank you so much for your, your, your tour guiding, your inspiration. Thank you, Rick. It's been a pleasure. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton, Kazmara Hall, and Donna Bardsley. Andrew Wakeling uploads the show to our website, Sheila Gerzoff handles affiliate promotions, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. 
We had studio help this week from Arizona Public Media in Tucson. You'll find more each week at ricksteves.com slash radio.